When life throws you a curveball, how are you going to handle adversity? Welcome to the Fearless Mindset Podcast, where you're about to go on a journey as I interview security, business, and entertainment leaders on what it takes to stay fearless. I'm your host, Mark Ludlow, and enjoy today's episode. It's interesting, but your journey was all about servanthood. You're always serving. Yeah. And you loved pushing yourself. And I started surfing with your dad on those waves. Mm. You felt that peace. Yeah. Being out in the wave is just tranquil, peaceful. When you're probably freezing cold in the water out there, wherever you're yeah. at, I just like, man, it's UK, yeah. UK water. <laughs> yeah. It's not like Huntington Beach water. No, it's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, official beaches in Huntington Beach. But no, yeah, my father used to take us away um, for summer vacation. We used to go to, uh, it's about a four-hour drive down to Newquay. So that's where really my, my passion or my love for the water came from or... or being fearless in the water. You know, one of the biggest things now with my children is get them in the water as quick as possible. Um, but the um, but my father was also the um, army soccer manager and coach and player. So everything he did, it was competitive. You know, even to, on Christmas day, we would have a family board game and it, even you had to win it. It was almost like, so, <laughs> so I always, I always had that some sort of competitive streak from him. Um, but, you know, in, in those sort of areas. But when it sort of came to joining the military, you know, I was, you know, 67 kilograms at the time. which was probably about 145 Light. pounds. Yeah. Another weight. And five foot seven. Actually, my wife was looking at my med docs the other day because we, we, we were going through a, um, a claim with the military. And she's like, I found my med docs from 1995. She goes, my word, you were five foot seven. And I said, yeah, that was how I joined. I wasn't the figure or the person I, I am now. But, you know, when I joined the military, I didn't I didn't have any aspirations for the special forces. I actually did it to silence my father. My father told me I'd last two minutes. And I, I remember thought, that reading that. And and you know that was quite hurtful f- for me from him because you know I, I respected him so much. But I always and for me, there's no point in arguing with someone. You know, I mean, you know, actions speak louder than words. And so yeah, I, I went on and joined the military as well. I mean, when he saw that I was actually being serious, you know, he was then fully behind it. But you know, I just wanted to get past the first phase, which was basic training. You know, did 10 weeks basic training, went to the next phase, which was 12 weeks. But in a very short period of time, in about 18 months to two years, I was soon nearly 180 pounds. Wow. And, yeah, and five and ten. yeah, I put, you know, I obviously was wow. eating so much <laughs> in the military. They, they, they fed me well, but I was training all the time. But I also was not only just passing the courses, but becoming like top student on them. See, yeah, I mean, seeing that I was actually better than those near me. So then that's when my eyes sort of then started turning towards the commandos, the paras uh, and, and such. And so, and then when I became successful, it was like, well, what's, what's next? And so as I was in a short period of time, I was growing both physically, but mentally as well. Um, the mental growth projection you were on was like a rocket ship. Yeah. And now you hit the commando, you went that level. And then I read when you hit the Reese Yeah, and I'm like, and you just kept on, just elevating, elevating, because you got your belief level. Yeah, well, that was it. Yeah, yourself. so I, you know, joined the commandos and the recce troops. Got my para wings. I was a, a PTI. I was a diver. I did every arduous course you could do in the Royal Engineers. Because I joined the Royal Engineers like my father, and so the only course then available to me was the UK Special Forces. So I'd spent eight years 
in free commando brigade in the recce troops um i was an instructor on the commando course and now as i was a sergeant i was the uh, the senior dive instructor at the defense diving school because of my love for the water and i went commandos as well because they were based in north devon and they had the surfing beaches <laughs> and so really my my career was like steered with wherever the the water water is and so i decided i was going to go special forces but coming from the royal engineers from the army the the only route you could go was the special air service and the royal marines would go special boat service but the the, air, the special boat service were losing marine candidates to the SES because they had the choice of of either not everyone liked diving because being in underwater is quite an alien environment where for me it's where i'm most comfortable um and so they decided to open this Tri service. So unlike here, where you have SEAL Team Six and Delta Force have their own selection process, ours is joint. So SAS and SBS is joint. So it, you know, I wasn't going an easier path going one way or the other. Um, so I decided I would go special boat service, much to the disgust of my uh, SAS friends in the uh, uh, up the road. And um, yeah, we started with two hundred guys. Six months later, eight of us passed, and you know, became one of the first army guys. To, to do that and i think now 15 percent of the sps may come from from the army so again sort of challenge with like my father telling me the last two minutes you know they tell you to be the gray man on selection it's six months long you know you want to you know gray man for you don't want to bring any attention to yourself either for for the right reasons or the, or the wrong reasons you want to sort of, sort of blend in the group and, and as the numbers deteriorate over time of course you will be you will stand out um especially with the last few but yeah, I was the grey man for about two minutes on a six-month course. Yeah, all I heard on the parade square was stop. And I stood up. <laughs> Is that like, why you go in SBS? And I said, I like diving. Is that? That's not a good enough excuse. And so already I'd, I'd put the spotlight on me. Um, but I was confident in my abilities. And, you know, I had a sense of humour and, and, like and things like that. And, you, and you have to be confident in your abilities as well. And so, yeah, I, I, and I passed and, um, yeah, went, went through in the end, which was, uh, which was good for me. And I... I'd reached the pinnacle in my career. I was now working alongside like-minded in individuals, had the same drive, same passion, that pursuit of excellence. And so for me, I'd, I'd come home. I take it you love the team camaraderie. You really enjoyed that? I love, I, yeah, I love the team camaraderie. I like, you know, especially males, we like to be part of a team or a tribe. You know, we like to be part of some sort of unit or, or a group, you know, whether, it's, whether you're playing on the soccer pitch or whether you're in the, in the military. And... Um, and, you know, a lot of people say to me, you know, do you miss it? And I, I, I always say, look, I miss the, I miss the, uh, yeah. I miss the, sir I miss the clowns, but not the circus, <laughs> you know, so I do miss the guys, but yeah. not, maybe not the whole, the whole group. So I would agree with that. But the, the, the difference between like tier, tier two and tier one special forces, tier two special forces, like the commandos, the paras, you know, very arduous courses as well, but that's more of a team building, you know, that you know that you can operate in a team. So when you go on tier one selection, you know, they're testing you, yes, as a team player, but you also need to be as, a, as an individual because you can't be reliant on it. There are going to be occasions where you are on your own as well. So it's a, it's a different selection process, but you have to be a team player because it, there are occasions where, you know, you may have to backfill another team and it might not be your team. So you need to be able to slot in and out of those and working with our, our allies as well. So, you know, that that's a key part of being in the Special Forces. Wow. Yeah, I, I was in the Marine Corps for eight years, and I thought I was going to die through boot camp. I told my dad, I'd say, hey, I'm not coming home unless I'm in a casket or I'm graduating, period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it was hell, yeah. It yeah. was three months of pure mental, it's mental hell. Yeah. It's mental, it's all it is is chaos. And they put you in the most extreme chaos to see if you can handle it. 
Yeah, that's what boot camp really is. Yeah, that's what it is. You know, it's not so much the the, the physical. Everyone has this. You know, Hollywood doesn't help matters. It doesn't. You know, right. Dwayne Johnson and all them lot. You know, everyone thinks that you know, right. built like what we call brick shit houses, and <laughs> six foot eight and breathe fire. But actually, a lot of the guys don't. You know, and True. yes, you have to be you know physically capable, but a lot of it is mental as well. And 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 that's the great thing about our our selection process is like the first month is all the physical, and it's not your press ups, your pull ups. It's running up and down. You know, A to B with big Bergens on your back, you know, and and being self motivated. Right. You know, you don't have an instructor shouting at you. You know that you've done that before back in your other units. You now have to be self motivated. But there's, you know, and that's the great thing about selection because you do have the fittest guys, and and everyone's mm-hmm. like, well, he'll he'll be there at the end. But he may be the fittest guy, but if he doesn't isn't able to retain information, you know, when you're learning about new communications kits and new standard operational procedures. No, they don't have time on selection. They say, we'll tell you once, we may tell you twice, anything like that, then you go. So it's actually being the fittest isn't the best. It's, it's a, the selection process dwindles out. Those that are fit, but those that can also retain information, those that can work in teams, work on their own, you know, and, and make uh, decisive decisions under pressure. I think the reason why the EP industry is so huge right now in the U.S., because we're discussing something that we, we experienced in the military. And that's what I think is so attractive to the EP industry in the yeah. United States. Everybody wants to be part of a team. Yeah, I think everyone wants to be part of a team. I, I, I've I've mixed mixed views on that. You know, I see like so some of the guys like last year, for example, when we were, I was chatting at the EP conference. You know, I the look in the audience. Yeah, I looked in the in the in the audience, and I'd probably say, you know, fifty percent of the guys, ex-military, ex-law enforcement. You know, and it was a natural progression from the military you know you again you are working alongside like-minded being part of that team i mean there was another 50 percent who probably watched too much jason Bourne, and 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 <laughs> uh, as well but then I, I i do see that a lot of guys sometimes maybe yeah. never maybe never not achieved maybe never mm-hmm. um filled that void in their time in the military and think they can then do it in the ep world the ep world isn't the military isn't an extension of the military it's different rules you're you're under different rules of engagement and and things like that. And I think that's again the Hollywood doesn't help matters. It does that. not People help. People think, at all. oh, you can do this, and and it's not actually. As I said before, you go from being the bravest in the world to the biggest, the big, the biggest coward. Um, wow. So yeah. So for me, I, 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 you know, when I when I do some, you know, we talk mm-hmm. about evacuating embassies on my own and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. It wasn't. It sounds very sexy in Hollywood, but yeah. the success of that, you know, again, Hollywood, I always blame Hollywood. It's only up the road. But, <laughs> up the road. You know, everyone has this perception of special right. forces of, mm-hmm. you know, the, the bombs, the biceps, the bullets and things like that, which, which makes good TV. But that's actually 25% of what we do. 25%. Yeah. And that's, right. and that's, True. that's the, that's your final plan. When I'm talking about your primary, secondary, tertiary, yeah. and then you get your firearm. Yep. That's that 25%. True. No, 50% of what we do is support and influence. It's hearts and minds, being embedded with the locals, understanding the demographics, the politics, the tribal influences, mm-hmm. and being just flying under the radar as, as, as they say. So people have, there's a place for that visible EP, mm-hmm. especially with the celebrities. They're, they're, some of them like to have that visible EP. Right. But the EP that I'm sort of used to is is in the shadows. In the shadows uh, of the yeah, grey. That protective surveillance, you know, having a team around you, you don't even realise they're there. Um, so, yeah, it just depends on what people's perception of, of the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, when I... When I tell people I'm in the security industry, the way I'm built, I think they probably think I'm a doorman from the local nightclub. But <laughs> as we know, it's... 
it's such a diverse industry. Is. There is a place for those those big guys, you mm-hmm. know, with the Oakley shades, you know, standing next to the client. And then all the way down to surveillance teams, coaching and mentoring, con- consulting, crisis management. And now we have cyber as well, you know, which is just a... Which is another beast in its own. Um, I think I think the intelligence piece is actually exploding right now because I see more posts on LinkedIn about protective intelligence analyst positions. That any I see that more than I see looking for EP agents. Yeah, and I think that's great because the security program has to be able to sell that product to the C suite. And they have to show numbers and data to the CFO to get the shareholders to agree to it. Yeah, and it's also about visibility and, and what it what you know because you yeah. are whatever you do in the, in the industry, you are an extension mm-hmm. of your client or your or the, or the brand. So, you know, like I said there is a time and a place for that visible EP, but the the protective surveillance, you know, that's something we've been doing for years. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes you don't even realize there's actually someone of importance. It is absolutely. until you see the the EP team, and then you start looking around. Um, but you know, we, we've had it before where you see all the EP team in and around the client, whether they're in a box at the, mm-hmm. at the Super Bowl. Yeah. But right. you've you've lost your intelligence picture. You've lost your visibility of what's going on in and around the stadium. Mm-hmm. So we would just stick one person with the client, and the rest of the team are, are just bouncing around, giving it that 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 feed. I mean, like you said, if there's trouble in one direction, you're already aware of it. I mean, you you divert the client the other. But so it is starting to really take off. In the U.S., the protected surveillance as well. Like some clients, yes, they want they want to have the comfort knowing that they have an armed security, mm-hmm. but they don't want it visible mm-hmm. as well. So yeah, it's, it's almost more, yeah, very covert. Covert is more. It's just mm-hmm. as effective. Yeah, um, it keeps your your footprint low, um, and also sort of eases any issues of, of visibility or how that how you may come across um, as well. So I just had a call with a good friend. Uh, we used to do a lot of stuff at the Olympics and the World Cup and yeah, some of the big sporting events that are coming to the US, you know, right. we have guys in and around the stadiums just identifying POIs, you know, whether it's a streaker or something like that, you know, having mm-hmm. that. And uh, a team I know in the UK, there's a, a an Arab princess who thinks she thinks she's in London on her own. Uh-huh. Good uh, luck with that 19 one. year old. Uh, I think there's mm. six six man teams rotating around her all the time and she's not aware. Not but aware. It's effective, yeah. You wow. Know, the client who is her father is, mm-hmm. is happy that she's protected, and she still mm-hmm. feels you know it's not it's a non intrusive mm-hmm. way of doing EP. Here's a question for you, Dean. Everybody, all the people listening that are in the EP industry and all the law enforcement that work in the EP industry, they're going to want to know this answer yeah. from you. What is your thoughts of the future of EP in the United States of America? As far as you know, we got. You know, uh, former President Trump just announced that he's going to run for re-election again. Yeah. We got Biden there. We have polarization from left and right. And for the record, I worked for, uh, when I was in the Marine Corps, I served under Bill Clinton. So I was willing to give my life under a Democratic president. So I don't want to hear backlash that I'm going political. I'm not. <laughs> I serve my country. Yeah, yeah. Period. Yeah. yeah. And well, how I vote, none of your business. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but I want to know, what's your professional opinion and thoughts of where's we headed as far as needing for EP? What are you hearing from your clients? Is it going to be a bigger demand next year? Is it going to be uh, America going to be more polarization because of the presidential election? What's your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, you know, as you, as you know, in the industry, you never talk about sex, religion, or politics. Yeah. It always gets you down the wrong avenue. So, <laughs> and the great thing about myself coming from the UK is I don't actually understand. You know? So <laughs> you know, everyone asks me about Brexit instead, which is, which is funny. But, yeah. um, you know, for me, there's always going to be a demand for EP. There's always going to be that, that risk. Um, you know, obviously what we saw in the last couple of years, uh, you know, 
people then, especially when they're talking about defunding the police, um, you know, I think the, the, the police and the EP industry can work, work together. You know, a, there's a lot of talent in the EP world, you know, the, the amount of guys and girls that have left the military and the experience that they've got, you can't replicate that here. They've, they've done that overseas uh, and the law enforcement as well. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like utilizing that talent. You know, mm -hmm. don't, I always, I do a lot um, with charities on transitioning from um, special operations to civilian life. And everyone, again, Hollywood has this perception that these CEOs think that all we can do is blow in the walls and take down targets. And actually, we do a lot of strategic planning and, you know, mm -hmm. contingency planning and being reactive to situation changes and things like that. So there is talent out there. So what I'd like to see is is utilizing that talent and merging with the likes of the law enforcement because they are undermanned, underpaid. Um, but for me, you know, what was a real um, eye opener? And it is no disrespect at all to anyone in the EP industry here. It's just that you don't have it. Is like in the UK, we have... Um, the Security Industry Authority, which is a government-recognized body. So anyone who works in EP, uh, residential security, surveillance, has to have done a course which is recognized by one of the governing bodies. So you know that that person or someone you're employing has had has done course and done training to this level. So there's a baseline. Mm -hmm. um, and whereas here in the US, it, it, it's really surprised me where you have some excellent excellent some of the best operators i've ever seen and then you have the right at the bottom end someone who's just done an eight hour online ep course got his ccw and you no know, thinks he's jason Bourne. and so <laughs> so for me what i'd really like to see here in the us and someone i'd I'm start like mm -hmm. to push or you know probably put it out there first here it's almost like setting the benchmark you know having a um yeah having a, a start point for others and then you can you can go up from there right. and i think that would eliminate those who generally want to be in the ep world and mm -hmm. those who think it, it looks sexy um because it actually isn't <laughs> you know it's you know not. it's like the special forces you know it's yeah boring. hollywood makes us look sexy but you know 75 percent of the time we do what we do isn't sexy you sit in a car watching the property watching the gate yeah you'll watch halls and walls watching a door and then you might have that 10 percent where you're walking escorting the principal to the car yeah. you know leaving in route, you know, departing to wherever. And you, if you're lucky, might be in a chase car, if you're lucky. If you're lucky, But normally yeah. you're in your shotgun with the principal behind you. Because they don't want to spend any money. Yeah. And I'm right now, I'm seeing a big trend where a lot of these budgets are getting axed. Like Facebook just laid off a bunch of people. Oh, really? And all these corporations are doing massive layoffs because they're preparing for next year. Yeah. And they're saying recession, recessions around the corner. Yeah. I don't know if that's propaganda. I don't, I don't know. know. Yeah, I Who don't knows? know. Who knows? <laughs> I, I, it's one of the one of the hardest things about the security industry, and I, and I have it as well. When you're you're trying to showcase it or sell it, is is security always seems like a bad word. Bad word. You, definitely. you know, it just seems like a bad word. It's it's not, it's not like you're buying something from the shop a product mm -hmm. that you can you can have. You know, a lot of this security stuff, especially our, our stuff, intelligence, you don't even see it. <laughs> you don't. Right. Um, so I you know, but it's really interesting that you know when I speak to some of our clients, it's about being proactive and not reactive. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. we're in a society where everyone would rather just be reactive you know mm -hmm. we'll deal with that when we need it but actually if you're proactive it costs 10 percent mm. of what it costs if it's reactive true but it's, it's really sort of just changing that 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 mindset mm. mindset of that as well um so educating the c-suite and yeah high, high, uh, family offices that are out there high net worth families say educate yeah. them and 
And social media is probably the biggest threat to the kids. Yeah, well, my wife, she does a child exploitation online protection. Oh, and when back in UK, she used to train, oh, wow. uh, it's like our equivalent of the NSA. So she would train teachers and mm-hmm. uh, councils. And yeah, and, and, and it is. We, we, you and I, were born into a world where we, before we had mobile phones. Whereas now, whereas now everyone's leaving a digital footprint. You know, mm-hmm. I'm still... Uh, I'm still flabbergasted how I can do a Zoom call with someone. You know, it's, it's beyond me. But, you know, especially like we deal a lot with the ultra high net worths in the family offices. And and some of them are second and third generation. They're like, no, third generation. They're, yeah, so third we're talking gen- about legacy money. Legacy. legacy money, yeah. Whereas, you know, but their, their Achilles heel is their children and their grandchildren. Uh, yeah, and, and so it may not be direct threat to you but you know here we actually did a little search online and this is what we found and so so the risks um you know the threats aren't as as visible as it used to be they're all behind behind the scenes and so it's trying trying to keep up with that so what we tend to do we have we have a cyber team and a holistic team we because what you tend you see in the industry you have the physical security Mm -hmm. i mean you have the cyber security working completely um separate and when they have these clients they they're like working with two different organizations. So we've, we've sort of, we've merged them all. Um, and sort of, I've started to learn more about cyber it's a different world. language and mm-hmm. they've learned about us. And actually there's mm-hmm. a lot, there is a lot of crossovers, which actually saves the clients um, a lot of money as well. But it's a, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a fast growing industry to cyber, but everyone seems to, you know, we did a recent survey. Everyone seemed to be very focused on the cyber but don't forget, there's still the physical. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, I tend to find the trends. I we only get in touch when there's been an incident, which is unfortunate. Respo- and, and that's just trying to yeah get people in the mindset is like you don't need, you know, you don't need to be calling us. You know, this could have been prevented a while back. And when some of the bigger corporations, you know, when you start talking about reducing their insurance premiums, that's when there is they want to talk. Know, they want to talk. You know, how can you, mm-hmm. you save save your money? Um, is that usually done with your risk assessment, threat assessment? That's how you get the cost yeah, savings. Yeah, risk assessment, threat assessment. No, I sort of find myself in the industry that, you know, I, I call them the big five who, you know, they charge six, seven figure sums. I've heard. All these things. And actually, when you scrape the surface, there's nothing in place, but they've got huge overheads and they've got, you know, big offices, staff they've got to pay uh, and things like that. So they're, they're, their price is high, but those are actually delivering of probably you, me and my friends, the, the guys on the ground. So where I sort of come in and say, well, we can deliver the same product for half the price. For half the price. Um, the and, competitors and don't like yeah, to hear that. They don't like to hear that. But, yeah, it, but, it, but it's true. You know, that's the thing. You know, I, I had a conversation once with a big finance group and the gentleman was like that, one of the directors. So, so why would I call you and not, you know, such and such company? I said, because it saves a phone call because they're going to call me anyway. They're going to call me anyway. It. Yeah. And so that's what I used to mm-hmm. do. When we see in, in Africa and the Middle East, me and my yeah. friends, you know, we would get the same phone call. We'd get a, a, a phone call, about three phone calls in a day from three different of the big groups saying, oh, what's your availability for next week in, in such and such? Name your price. And yeah, but knowing that they're all three of them are bidding for the same contract. They hadn't won it yet. Knowing that they couldn't deliver it, it still had to come to us. So that's why that's what really upset me about the industry is seeing that these, these big players were, were just lining their pockets. But as they got big, the... Um, yeah, as they got big, the, the product they were pushing out wasn't getting better. That's what I'm hearing. It's deteriorating. You know, when they start going public and things like that, they're run by accountants. Accountants are shaving money. And so... That's what I'm hearing. Yes. And so it's like, for me, it's like, I don't want to be the biggest. You know, it's very nice being a more of a discreet, bespoke, 
mm-hmm. uh, organization and be and just still delivering that product. But and I can still put tier one guys on the ground and still be cheaper, cheaper, cheaper right. than them. But yeah, unfortunately, you know, as we see, not just in the security, but some of these other brands are just buying out all the other brands, all their competitors. But unfortunately, the guys on the ground, they're the products deteriorating. Yeah, because at the end of the day, they're going to still use the same guys that are on the ground. Exactly. Yeah, I remember my very first job within 48 hours, I was help, helping set up the um, the DFID project, Department for Institute Development with the British Embassy in Benghazi. And I remember that story. Yeah, so my friend uh, rang me and he said, look, Dean, I'd only been out 48 hours. You were on the ground in Benghazi, right? Yeah, I was in Rihanna. Yeah, in, well, the, the evening the American ambassador got killed, I, I single-handedly evacuated a, a German oil company through safe houses that I had in the desert. But that was 2012. This was the year before in 2000, May 2011. And so he said, look, I would normally, um, and he, he, he was a head of EP for Control Risk Group. He said, I, I would normally um, interview all these guys. I need to get 40 guys in. And he goes, I need you to go in. I need you to get everything set up. And so I went in, got it all set up. These guys came in, um, sort of handed over to them and, and left. And there were some of them guys were on, were on good money at the beginning of that task. And then they lost the contract to another company. And it was like half, half, uh, the pay but the guys still stayed on and it's just like you still got the same quality of guys but not giving them what they what they deserve um, but yeah the, the bottom line or the what's your biggest complaint about the, I'm not going to name names on the no, podcast but what is your biggest complaint with the, the big these companies I'm hearing that they're not getting a response they're not getting call back they're yeah. charging a lot of money and they're getting guard level quality product. yeah I think, I think you hit the nail, on, uh, the nail on the head on all of them it's it's you know, sort of going back, you know, when I did that task in Libya, mm-hmm. I, I soon identified that the Libyans didn't want it being another Afghan and Iraq. You know, once mm-hmm. Gaddafi had fallen, they wanted to take control of the country. They didn't want Westerners walking around with weapons like, like we had in, mm-hmm. in Afghan and Iraq. Um, but the second one was these, the big, I call them the big five. The big five big were five, charging, right. you know, seven figure sums for crisis management and evacuation plans, which actually when you scrape the service weren't even in place. So they were still lining their pockets, selling a product that they didn't actually have. And so I, I, there was a huge proliferation of weapons at the time and I bought 30 weapons on the black market and I buried them between Tunis and Egypt and designed my own evacuation plans. And I then sold that to the oil and gas sector. And really interesting in the fact that some of these big five that I was talking about, when the Tripoli war came, so in 2012, I evacuated the oil company during the evening the American ambassador got killed. And because of the success of that, two years later, Canadian embassy ring me and said, look, it's the Tripoli war, your name keeps coming up. And, 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 and some of the other security companies mm-hmm. who had been paying, getting retainers from their clients, and then when challenged, had nothing in place, I was having to sell my evac plans to them as well. And so wow. really interesting that these multi-billion pound industries are saying that we have this and have that and actually don't. And so that's one of the biggest complaints I'm getting is actually do you have it? Because having an evacuation plan on paper, a lot of it's a paper exercise. Yeah, we've got that, we've got that. Well, have you actually stress tested that? Have you gone out and driven that route? Have you been to that beach? And a lot of them don't. As you know, with some of these security companies, there's a, there's a big turnover of security managers. And, there is, huge. And, and so it's trying to keep on, keep on top of that. And so, and so yeah, that's, you know, evacuated the Canadian embassy on my own, 18 military and four diplomats. And, um, and it was, it was just me, uh, my fixer and two fish wagons. And I charged, you know, how much do you think I would have charged for that whole task? 100 grand. 
Easy, I could have got hundred grand. I charged seven thousand dollars because that's all I needed just to pay my fixed. Seven thousand. Seven thousand dollars. Yeah, because to me, I didn't wow. want to see to be taken advantage of people's misfortune. You know, I was there anyway. Um, wow. You know, and so it's like, well, yeah, let's get you out. And and as we've just seen more recently with Afghanistan, it hasn't changed. The security companies are still charging. Still and not delivering. The insurance companies are calling force majeure. So we ended up getting hundreds out um, who weren't our clients, but were let down by other security providers. So where we sort of differ from these other ones is is actually rather than just a paper exercise. Mm-hmm. So I'll use Afghanistan example, like Kabul, you know, an insurance company, you have an insurance policy, yeah, we can get an aircraft in. The insurance company is not responsible for getting you from A to be mm-hmm. and none of them do and none of them so we we focus on i call it the, the first mile mm-hmm. we stress test the first mile we we drive it we have mm-hmm. safe houses and things like that and so and we, we're now chatting with some of the insurance companies that they they feel like they're not supporting their their clients as much and so the, afghan really opened everyone's eyes but afghan that happens all the time not on a scale like it was in in, in the world's press but there's incidents all over the world of crisis management that's failed and people said that they, we had plans in place and they and they didn't and it just gets swept under they'll get a payout or, or or something else but that's the problem i'm seeing is that actually what you say you do and what you actually deliver are two different things in the, in the private security sector in the private security sector as well yeah and and yeah that's a problem 